On today's episode, we're focusing on shoulder instability with Dr. Mark Price, orthopedic surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and head team physician for the New England Patriots. We have five great articles for you today that really contribute well to this conversation on how to best manage shoulder instability in athletes, both in-season and postseason. The first paper is from the February issue of AJSM, entitled Incidents of Posterior Shoulder Instability in the United States Military. It is a descriptive epidemiological study by Brett Owens and his team, which found the incidence is higher than previously reported. Then, from the January issue of Sports Health, we feature the publication, Does Functional Bracing of the Unstable Shoulder Improve Return to Play in Scholastic Athletes? Tokish and colleagues found functional bracing did not result in increased success rates when compared to no bracing in adolescent athletes. We will then follow up these articles with a discussion on the surgical management of shoulder instability by reviewing two articles from the March issue of Arthroscopy. The first is a prospective RCT titled Arthroscopic Bank Art Repair with and Without Curatage of the Glenoid Edge. Desai and his team concluded that curatage of the glenoid edge reduced the incidence of postoperative recurrence of instability, likely relating to improved healing of the capsule labrum repair. Avramidis and colleagues contributed their cases on the management of recurrent anterior shoulder instability by all arthroscopic modified Eden Hibernate procedure using iliac crest autographed and double pair button fixation system. Finally, Dr. Hetrich of Brigham and Women's Hospital recently investigated the question, are there racial differences between patients undergoing surgery for shoulder instability? We'll dive deeper into this topic and chat about how this impacts resident and fellow education. We're very honored to have Dr. Mark Price join our discussion today. Dr. Price specializes in sports medicine, knee, and shoulder surgery. He's an attending surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Price earned his MD from Harvard Medical School and PhD in medical physics from MIT. He completed the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program, where Catherine and I both attended as well, and then went on to complete a fellowship in sports medicine and shoulder reconstructive surgery at MassGen. Dr. Price is head team physician and medical director for the New England Patriots and a team physician for the Boston Red Sox. He is a captain in the U.S. Navy Reserves and has served in combat operations in Afghanistan, where he was awarded the Bronze Star Medal for Meritorious Service. Welcome to the show, Dr. Price. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, So we figured we would just dive right into it, um, starting with anterior instability first. Um, So how do you manage an athlete who sustains a first-time traumatic anterior shoulder dislocation in season, and how does that change if they're a recurrent dislocator? Well, thank you very much. And and thanks for having me on the show, guys. It's really an honor to be able to talk to you. Um, It's obviously an an area of of ongoing discussion. And, you know, I I think you all know this, but I'll say it anyway, is that it's highly, highly individual. It depends a lot on the player, the player's tolerance for risk, the where the player is in their career, how secure they feel with where they are. Um, and so I don't say that to, to try and dodge the question, but rather just to illustrate that you're not going to find uh, very much one size fits all here. But, but let's give a, a sort of a general answer to that. Uh, I would say in season that unless you have an individual who's truly, truly miserable, meaning it's just coming out all the time and they can't do anything about it, it's going to be awfully hard to get somebody off the field. And and I would say that that's at the high school level, that's at the D1 level, that's at the D3 level, and that's at the professional level. 
And it's just because, you know, they, once you have that first dislocation, okay, it's kind of a shock, but we all know, right. Within a couple of days, it's actually feeling okay. And if, you know, they're a hockey player, they're back on the ice. If they're a football player, they're already starting to do some drills, things like that. And so by the time you see them, you're, you're probably going to have a hard time convincing them that they're not doing well because they're actually doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say to them like, Hey, I know you're doing great. Let me, let me knock you down three pegs and take you out for the next six months. And so you do, I think, owe it to your patient though, to have a real conversation with them and say, Hey, here's, here's what we know about this in terms of recurrent instability, bone loss, subsequent development of bony lesions and, you know, changing the nature of the surgery that they would, they would undergo later on. Um, but I, I would argue I have that conversation, you know, a half a dozen times a year and, uh, very, very rarely will somebody that's doing okay and not having episodes happen over and over again, really, would they ever submit to that? Now in the other category, that person who, who isn't doing well, who says, look, I, I try and block, I tried to go up and catch a pass. I tried to, you know, take a slap shot, something like that. And the dang thing keeps coming out you don't really have to say anything. They're, they're the ones coming to you saying, I, I need to get this done because I can't finish the season the way this is. I, I, I have to keep pulling myself out of games, pulling myself out of practice, whatever it happens to be. And so on those folks, it doesn't really take, you know, there's not much discussion. It's, it's more about, you know, yes, I understand. And, and we'll do this at a time that works out conveniently for you and, and get that done. So, you know, and, and then, after that kind of broad sweeping overview, then there's going to be a lot of other stuff that, you know, depends, right? If it's the rookie who's really, really desperate to make the team, he's going to be a lot less inclined uh, than the, you know, sixth year veteran who's got basically an assured spot, you know, may go ahead and say like, hey, look, I'm, I'm worried about some of the stuff with my future. I want to make sure that I take care of this now because I want to have another six years and the coaches know I'm going to work my tail off and I'll be back next season. Good to go. And, and in reality, the coaches do know that they'll work their tail off and they'll be back next season ready to go. So it, it's in a way, it's a lot of these are actually easier conversations than you would think. Do you find, you know, the people that are not doing well and who have the recurrent dislocations, do you find that there's some other factors that are always sort of happening, whether it's like bone loss or position, or are they younger, or is it really just um, not always concordant with that? It's interesting. Uh, I'll, I would answer it in a slightly off way from what you suggested, Catherine, and, and that is if they're having other pain, right, the instability they can kind of live with. But when you find a lot of times these guys will get biceps pain, quite honestly. And I don't, you know, the theory is, right, they're, they're sliding out the front and probably banging on that biceps quite a bit. And, and once that guy has, you know, two, three, you know, biceps injections or something like that throughout the course of a season, they're, they're really, really interested in getting something done. They're, they're just about through with it because they can deal with the inconvenience of instability if it doesn't hurt. It's really hard for them when, when they've got all these other parts of their body that hurts. And then now they've just added one more on top of that. And so they definitely want to get something like that done. Um, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily, apropos of your question, um, you know, really a relation of, hey, is it, you know, certain positions, certain sports, things like that. Like, I think that, you know, if I were being, you know, a little more broad sweeping, the, the folks who have more 
year round sports. And by that, I'm thinking like the combat sports, right? The mixed martial artists, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those type of folks, they're, they're more than in, uh, pleased or very inclined to get it done sort of right away because it's kind of like their, their thing goes all year long and it's not like there's a specific season for them. And, and yes, we can argue hockey goes year long and certainly up in the Northeast, but even then there's, there's preferential times, right. When scouts are watching or when it's, you know, their, their preferred, you know, season, whether that's travel or high school or whatever. So um, it, it tends to correlate, I think a little bit less with, with those kinds of things than, than where they are in terms of their comfort with uh, what they're doing. And, and I guess we should also add, right. If we're, for being really sort of nitty gritty, you know, the senior in college versus the sophomore in college, right? Like they're going to have a very different calculus in terms of that, because some of these seniors are very realistic. Hey, look, I play, you know, D3 hockey. I love it. It's a great thing, but I got a, you know, internship at this bank next year. I know I'm not playing hockey anymore. And, and, but I, I really want to be out there for this. Yeah, no, I totally get that. So. For sure. For sure. So then for the patients that you're managing non-operatively, you said they're feeling better. Um, so, you know, usually they don't want to come out of play. Are you bracing any of these um, players in order to get them back to, to play safely? Do patients prefer bracing? Do coaches bring that up to you? Or are you not a fan of bracing for um, shoulder instability? I mean, I, it's, yes, <laughs> all <of> the above. <laughs> it's, it's a very fair point. Um, you know, and so what I would say is, I don't necessarily believe that it's going to work great. But for certain people, they actually like it. And and I don't know whether that's just because it's serving as a reminder of, hey, I don't want my arm to go in this spot. I mean, obviously, there's a spot where you can, you know, really get that thing and the, the sully brace or whatever it is you're in there is not going to do a, a darn thing for it. But, you know, sometimes, especially for linemen, you know, both offensive and defensive linemen, um, they don't necessarily need to get out in space as much, you know, they do, but not all the time. So they can tolerate that a lot better. You're never going to convince a defensive back or a receiver or someone like that, that really needs to be able to move and hand check and, and be able to move in, in all three dimensions. They'll, they'll never accept a brace like that. And I think on, on those folks, you do just sort of the same things that we learned about, you know, very early in our training of you just rehab the cuff, rehab the scapula, do everything you can to create the dynamic stability environment because, you know, the static stability environment is, is not what it should be. And so I think it's, and, and you've really got to stress that with your athletes that you need to pay attention to this because it's not going to solve your stability problem, but it may blunt the impact of it enough that you're not, you know, having all the bicep symptoms, all the anterior cuff symptoms, things like that, that a lot of these folks tend to get. Yeah. And I think that Tokish article was saying, you know, they didn't really find a big difference. Um, I certainly remember when I was a therapist, um, you know, you would see depending on where, like where the referral was coming from, like certain surgeons would brace, certain would not. And I would say that like in just those clinical observations, I never really saw a difference you know, as far as people getting back. And I, I think, like you say, some people really just mentally need it. Um, and it just gives them a little bit of a feeling of comfort, or maybe it reduces their apprehension in some way, like psychologically. But, you know, I can't say I ever saw like a big clinical difference. And no, it's I, 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 sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, that's okay. I was gonna say, it's interesting you brought that up with because the Tokish paper, it, they defined success as ability to return to play and not have shoulder symptoms, which is kind of what you were getting at, Dr. Price, that they have bicep symptoms and perhaps that brace prevents some of that mo- you know, motion that's leading to those symptoms versus a lot of the other papers talked about recurrent dislocation as like their primary outcome measure. So it is interesting. I mean, they still found no difference, but patient satisfaction, I mean, there are some studies saying patients prefer to be braced. They feel better in it. So um, so it sounds like it doesn't hurt, might not help, but it sounds like it's case by case basis and a discussion with your patient. And I think that's that's a perfect way of putting it too, Ashley, is, is and, and we have a tendency to do this a lot, I think, in orthopedics when we see the Tokish paper was perfect. When we see a result like that, you your first blush is, well, um, it doesn't help. But that remember, the second blush there is it doesn't hurt right? And so they did basically as well, one or the other, so that if you have an athlete, a patient who likes it, well, you can look them in the eye and say, hey, this isn't hurting anything. Like in it, you may be one of the people that feel better in it. And, and as we, you know, learn more and more, um, when you're defining criteria for return to play and feeling good about return to play, the above the neck factors are, are really, really important. And so, you know, what's the last step in the ACL functional screen, right? Your mental acuity and, and mental preparation, if you will, for getting back out, out, uh, out there and your confidence in doing that. And so if uh, a piece of, uh, nylon and, and Velcro wrapped around your arm gives you that, like, absolutely. That is, that is a no cost. You're not going to wreck anything. You're not going to ruin anything. Um, uh, way of of getting them that confidence and and I really think that what I took from that paper was was again the the inverse of I think the conclusion a lot of folks would would get from it on first blush and that is that you know it doesn't hurt anything to do this and uh, you may as well go ahead and try it and conversely if your athlete says I'm not wearing that thing I hate it you can say great yeah there's no there's no data that this makes it any better for you right and and Catherine you know certainly out where you are you've probably got like a, a lot of folks who do you functionally brace for the first season back skiing after an ACL or not? That was exactly and, what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you were and, in my mind that was like, you know, and I just have that discussion um, just having like, so my sister had three ACLs on the same knee. So I have like a very sort of in tune perception of the likes, you know, living with someone going through all those sort of surgeries and the psychological piece behind it. And you know, I, that's sort of, you know, the speech that I give, like, if this makes you feel better, you know, then there's no harm in doing it. And I have to say a lot of, there's also a lot of people, you know, in the communities where they see other people embracing because ACL injuries are so common. So they just think of it as like, oh, that's just part of what I need to do in the beginning. So, you know, but it just, you know, you sort of just give the choice and lay out the options and, you know, let them make the decision for themselves. Exactly. And, and, you know, it, it's, I think this goes to the bigger picture, if you will, of, of orthopedics, right? You know, when we look at papers from 10, 20 years ago, success was defined, you know, in terms of functional range of motion, strength, et cetera, or radiographic uh, evidence of healing, et cetera. And now that stuff is, is almost secondary to patient satisfaction, right? Which is really what you're after. I mean, how many of us have the, uh, you know, the result where you look at the x-ray and you're like, oh my gosh, that looks horrible. But your patients are like, this feels great. And, and you know, the thing is I taught you all and, and teach my, my fellows and residents still is don't talk a patient out of a good result. You know, if they're, if they're happy with it and this thing's working and it's not hurting something, the most important and there, um, obviously you got to talk them out of a good result if it's, you know, a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. Uh, but, 
but in general, you know, your patient will let you know how they're doing and, and it, it's in their best interest and your best interest to, to let them and, and to listen to them. So, yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Um, so shifting a little bit to posterior, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, you have both the military background and then that obviously your work with the Patriots, your, my guess is seeing a lot of posterior instability as well. Um, so Owens and his folks put out the paper saying that, you know, perhaps we're missing some of the posterior instability or this incidence is higher. Um, so a couple of kind of things we want to learn from you about there is, you know, are you seeing a higher incidence of posterior instability given your population? And then how are you managing it? Are they actually instability or are they just labral tear with pain? Um, and then how are you managing it? So, you know, the NFL, you're absolutely right, is, is definitely, you know, almost a unique population as far as that goes, because you have, you know, what may be as much of a, a third of your team dedicated to being in a position pushing other the other third of your team you know in that or the other third of someone else's team in that same position putting a lot of posterior stress on the shoulder um and so we definitely see it you know frequently but but the number of times that we need to operate on it isn't very high um and you know jim bradley studied this in the nfl and and published a good result on this that sort of i think dovetails nicely with with brett's paper of yes there is an incidence of this in the athletic population that's higher than uh than we would necessarily think based on the earlier studies for the the all takers um but it still is unlikely that you need to to fix a lot of these things now that being said, the folks that get fixed wind up doing pretty darn well because, you know, these are people who are putting a lot of stress on that and you, you get them in the off season and you go ahead and fix that. Um, and they're, they're actually quite happy with it. I do think that it, it tends to be more of a pain issue, Catherine. Like I think a lot of times these guys can tolerate that sort of subtle shift because everything is happening so quickly for them that, in some respects, you wonder whether or not they're subluxing more and they just don't even notice it, right? You know, they've got sure. deltoids the size of, yeah. you know, our waist. And uh, so it can resist, you know, that kind of stuff. And you certainly, you know, I challenge you to to take a 300-pound lineman and see if you can posterior load and shift them. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that it's probably, you know, as prevalent, if not more so in that population, Um and it, it probably goes underreported because they just view it as that, well, you know, these guys are, are savvy and they know, well, look, I'm, I'm pushing on something. So, of course, the back of my shoulder is going to hurt and they don't think much about it. Um, when we when we do really get into a problem is more of the traumatic, I would say, than the attritional, right? You know, the guy who falls out like on his extended arm or something mm-hmm. like that or comes down on his elbow and really pushes out the back. And, and we've had a few, you know, over the years where it even is a bony injury. Um, and, and we've had it all the way to the extent of where it's, it's really more of a scapula fracture than it is truly a, a you know, posterior bony bank heart. Um, and you can kind of see that whole spectrum. And, and as you start marching up on that spectrum, uh, the need to operate becomes clearer and clearer. These are the, the, you know, I would argue, uh, the in-season instability surgeries I've done have almost always been posterior because these are guys who just really cannot get out there. They, they, you know, they get into that spot and they try and block or they try and tackle and the shoulder dislocates or at least subluxes massively. And it's a big neuromuscular response, right? The cuff just shuts down and all of a sudden they can't move there. You know, they, they look 
for all the world, kind of like a cuff tear, like a, you know, infraspinatus tear or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And that, you know, your brain, the first few times you see it goes there because you see like, oh, they've got good passive motion, but they can't do it at all. And it's, it's really just more of just true cuff inhibition because it it came out the back and, and just irritated the, the dickens out of it and so those folks that that happens uh, reproducibly for them doing what they do and and i can think of you know several in season that we've done just because they say my season's over like i can't even play it down on this thing okay since you said that mostly um posterior instability it's more pain related that they're compare you know complaining of not really um instability aside from um what you were just saying um do you inject these like what's your po- what's your management of them in season do you do like a cortisone injection or a lidocaine injection or something to get them through the season until the end to help with their pain Typically not. I'm not a huge fan, I have to admit, of cortisone in the shoulder. Um, You know, I think there's a role for it in some things, uh, AC joint, biceps, you know, stuff that I would I would put under the heading of uh, you don't care if cortisone messes it up. And, And that's the way I phrase it to my patients is is if cortisone messes up your AC joint it's not a huge ordeal, right? We'll just shave off the end of your AC joint. If cortisone messes up your biceps, it's not a big deal. Either the biceps will tear or we'll go ahead and tear it for you and then fix it if you want to fix it. And and they all, they look around the locker room and they see people with Popeye deformities and, and they say like, yeah, it, it hurt for a while, then it popped and now I feel great. And and so yeah. they they get that. When you start putting it in the glenohumeral joint, I, I do, I get a little more nervous that you're you're already taking something now that you've admitted has instability, that therefore has abnormal contact forces in the shoulder that we know, not definitively, but we know with some reasonable degree of confidence that they are more of a setup for osteoarthritic changes. And now you're putting in chondrotoxic chemicals just to basically get them out there. And so uh, I would never say never, you know, in this line of work, there may be a circumstance where it does make sense and your, your patient is really savvy and, and they, they get it and, and you've had a, a good informed conversation. Um, but uh, I would say I've got to be, I've got to be talked off my, my position is, is how I would put that. My default position is no, I wouldn't do cortisone for that. I honestly think actually that, that you've got to demonstrate that you can do okay with a good cuff program. If you can demonstrate that you can make your, your posterior cuff strong and everything is, is going smoothly, but you still get just a little bite in the back and it's, you know, the end of the season and you just want to, you know, you're in a, a hunt for something or whatever. And you're like, geez, I just, I, I'm like 70%. If I could be 90%, I'd be so much better. And we have that conversation about risk benefit from it. Then, then I think it's, it's reasonable, but um, I, I, in, in seven years, I'm, I'm not sure that we've done many glenohumeral injections for, for much of anything, quite honestly. Um, and there's, I'm sure we could sit here and think of a few, but it's, it's, it would be the exception rather than the rule. The other thing um, that I've always carried with me, like literally for like over 20 years now is, um, so Axe in Delaware, he put out this article like an AJSM when AJSM looked quite different, <laughs> but it was um, basically like grip um, and hand position modifications for like strength training. So it was whether you had posterior anterior instability. And it was something that somebody gave to me when I was a physical therapist and I used to just carry it around everywhere. And 
that I think has also like helped over the years where it's like, you know, just kind of talking through, okay, like if you're in season and you're either anterior or posterior, you can, you know, kind of change your grips this way, whether you're under underhand or overhand, or you have a, you know, you're doing some sort of bench and it's wide or narrow, you know, and trying to just like, think of all the ways you can sort of just like when they're off the field, minimize the um, provocation of those symptoms. So I mean, it's a super article and it's not like an evidence-based article, but just like anecdotal, um, I always found it pretty useful. Well, the other useful point there, Catherine, and and it stresses another part about this is that it it again shows why this is a team sport, that if you don't have a conversation with the strength coach about this player, you're really missing something. So that hand position thing, I I think you're absolutely, I didn't know about that article, but it's, it's, I would argue it's spot on. So you got a guy with with bad posterior symptoms and you know he's got a, a posterior labral tear um we talk to the the strength coach and be like hey have him do uh bench press on two blocks so he never really comes down all the way um have him do you know or there's there's more modifications than i i definitely more than i know about and you can usually just have that that 30 second conversation with the strength coach and be like hey he's you know one of these guys with the bad posterior labrum and we're like got it and so and then obviously you're talking to your your trainers all the time about that stuff and and truth be told they probably know about it before you do but right. uh, <laughs> but that's that's the important you know piece there is is you know, recognizing, hey, look, you're the the doctor, the surgeon, and, and you're good if, if the wheels come off, but there's a lot of other people far better than you at keeping the wheels on. So make sure that they know, you know, what the wheels look like to beat that analogy to death. So, but yeah, that's a, a very good point you bring up. 100%. Thanks for listening to episode three of the Sports Talks podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod.